Well, thank you to all that have helped us to worship in uh, whatever way, whether that's just singing, I don't want to say just, but including those just singing out uh, in your chairs or those on the platform musically. Um, again, people coming out early to set up uh, and do many different things. We have faithful women uh, in the nursery right now watching our children and our grandchildren, other faithful workers helping uh, in children's church, uh, people keeping us safe around the campus uh, even as we meet in here. And uh, many, many people actively serving, live streaming people. Thank you for working in the back, and we welcome you uh, that are joining us by way of live stream. And uh, we're very glad that we could be together this morning and we could worship the Lord Jesus Christ together. And our worship continues as we open up to Hebrews. I invite you to open up to Hebrews chapter 12. And we're actually going to finish up something today. We're going to finish up a section of chapter 12 that all fits together, and it's kind of hard to pull any small section out of it. The section is verse 1 through 17 that has to do with running the race. Today's message, we're actually going to focus on just the last three verses of that section, verses 15, 16, and 17. And yet at the same time, it's hard to understand what it means if we don't spend at least a little bit of time reviewing the context. So for those of you who come each week and your memories are good, uh, then I hope that you would uh, just be patient while we once again review a little bit of context. In fact, I want to start this morning by reviewing the importance of considering the context. And I'll repeat an illustration I began with last week, right? We could take a phrase like this from Shakespeare, what's in a name? That which we call the rose by any other word would smell as sweet. And ask, what does that mean? And we might come to a conclusion that names don't matter. And that's not true. Right? Children, again, if you had a dog that was brown, would you name him Whitey? No. If you had a dog that was white, would you name him Brownie? No. You know, mom and dad, if you have a new child, would you name your daughter Jezebel? or your son Judas, of course not, because you know names do matter, okay? So you say, what does this mean? You have to consider the context. And in the context, it's the idea that allegedly that a young man and a young woman should be able to get married if they'd like to, even if their family's last name fight quite a bit. That's the point of Shakespeare. You say, well, you did that last week. Give us a new one. Oh, let's try another one. The early bird catches the worm. What does that mean? Anyone? The early bird catches the worm. Well, you know, it's good to wake up early because that early bird catches the worm. The bird that sleeps in, that goes out later, the worm's gone. The first bird got it. So you say, is the point that you should always be first. Let me finish the quote. The early bird catches the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. Okay? You say, what happened to the first mouse? And, you know, the first mouse is not able to get the cheese, okay? Because his path was rudely interrupted. I'll just say that. Children, ask mom when you get home, right? Is it always good to wake up? Now, some of you teenagers are thinking, I'm going to remember this, huh? Next time mom says, get out of bed, I'm going to go, nope, right? I'm the second mouse, mom. The point being, 
you need to take the whole phrase in context. We're not overly concerned about these. We're more concerned about Hebrews 12.14, which is the verse we talked about quite a bit last week. Pursue peace with all men. And when we understand the context of Hebrews 12, this verse, as well as the other verses that relate to both counsel and warnings, open up. So yet again, I want to quickly remind us of the context. The Christian life is a race. Running a race is difficult. Following Jesus is frequently difficult. So just real quick, the points. What do I do if I'm a Christian? You keep running your race. When you put your faith in Jesus, you were given the bib with the number. You started a race. Now, don't grow weary and lose heart. That's Hebrews 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Keep following Jesus. You say, okay, how do I do it? That's the second point. You set aside what slows you down, and you stay focused on Jesus. You keep rehearsing the gospel. And as I've mentioned many times, there's a runner, earbuds in. She's listening to the Bible. She's listening to sermons, what have you. A picture. We have to keep reviewing what is true so we don't get taken aside by things that are not true. You say, okay, why then do I have to face trials? A couple runners in the snow. I mean, I'm following Jesus. You would think God would just give me a great life. It's not that way. Your loving Heavenly Father is disciplining you. And please remember the word discipline is not a bad word. It's like football practice. It's like going to the weight room. It's like practicing your piano. We don't always like it, but it's good for us. And our loving Heavenly Father uses the trials of this life to help us. So don't under or overreact, verse 5. Don't consider it a light thing, but also don't grow weary. Just realize that every trial that you face is your loving Heavenly Father doing something. Why is He disciplining us? That's our fourth question. Verse 10 is the, is the key on that. It's always for your good that you will share His holiness. It's always for your good. So every time something in my life kind of messes up and doesn't go well, whether it's the small irritations or it's something really big like some of you are struggling with right now, God wants to use that in your life to help you be more like Jesus. You say, Greg, but it hurts. Do I have to suffer? And this text is yes. Discipline does hurt, verse 11, but it also leads us to fruitfulness. That's the setup of Hebrews 12, 1-11. Then we considered the counsel beginning in verse 12. I'll start reading now. And this is more review. Verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. That was our first point. Get back in the race. I mean, here you are, you've been following Jesus, and it got hard and you kind of thought, boy, I need to take a break. Verse 12 is saying, strengthen the hands, and the idea there of feeble means fallen. So the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And then secondly, make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. That was our second point. Stay in your lane. 
A runner has to stay in his lane. Make straight paths. Get back in the race. And don't go wandering everywhere doing what you think best. Follow the Lord. Trust in Him. Those are the first two things we see in verse 12 and 13. And then we'll split verse 14 in half. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification with which no, without which no one will see the Lord. And this is where we really spent a lot of time. And I got a lot of feedback last week. One person said, Greg, did you notice when you were preaching on verse 14, there were times you could have heard a pin drop in this room? And I understand that. Because the text says, Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with whom? The text says, with all men. Keep it in context. Who are the people you would not be at peace with? Review. Hebrews is written to Christians who are being persecuted slash sinned against by people who aren't Christians, by Jewish people that are angry with them. Hebrews, pursue peace with all men, including those who sin against you. So we are to think of people that have sinned against me. And I'm supposed to, rather than be bitter, that'll be coming up soon, I'm supposed to pursue peace with them. Why? Third sub-point, as instruments of your loving Heavenly Father's discipline. That's why we had to review all this context. Guys, people sin against me. And my thought is, what? Lord, come on. And the Lord gently reminds me, hey, Greg, you're headed to the weight room. Greg, go run another lap. It hurts. I know it hurts, but Greg, I love you. I'm your heavenly Father. I discipline you for your good. I'm making you more like Jesus no pain, no gain. If it doesn't hurt, it doesn't help. We're right, sports is where I live. You know, make the application to other areas of life where you have to really work hard at doing something well. Pursue peace with all men, including those who sin against you, as instruments of your loving Heavenly Father's discipline. Why does my life have to be so hard? You now have an answer if you're a follower of Jesus. It's because God loves you so much that He's doing something good in your life. And if the illustration helps, it's like a surgeon with a knife removing cancer. The knife is sharp. The pain is real. The blood is upsetting, the recovery is lengthy, and isn't it a blessing that there are surgeons out there who are willing to cause us pain for our good, God in the picture of a perfectly good and wise surgeon being the application there. And then there's a second part of verse 14, right? Because right after it says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So we're supposed to pursue holiness. The goal of your loving Heavenly Father's discipline 
is sanctification. That's holiness. Not initial sanctification. You got that when you became a believer. Not glorification. You won't get that until you see Christ. In between, progressive sanctification. So the reason God disciplines us is to make us more like Jesus, to make us more holy. And that, beloved, is the evidence of your Christianity without which no one will see the Lord. No one's going to heaven without holiness in their lives, according to this verse. Okay, And, and to really reflect on that, again, if you go online, go to Sermon Audio, I preach the message, holiness is not an option. It's one of the few messages that have an incredibly high number of listens uh, and something you might want to give thought to. Finally, we are now ready for today's message. Thank you for being patient with all of that, just bringing us up to speed. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15, 16, and 17. We've just had the counseling session over. Now the author gives us warnings. And I'll read verses 15, 16, and 17. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance. You say, okay, so what's going on? We have something that we need to pay careful attention to. Notice, guys, your verse 15, see to it. Um, It's not just a a throwaway word. It's the word we get um, bishop from. It means overseer. Uh, The Episcopal word comes from this. We all are supposed to be watching. Everyone that's part of the is supposed to be overseeing watching. This is not for elders only. This is for everyone. It's a general appeal. You say, what are we supposed to watch for? Three things. And this is actually one of the kind of texts that when I get into, I'm like, thank you, Lord, because I don't have to deal with where do I cut a point. Like, is this two points or four or three or five? Grammatically, it's very clear. Look at verse 15. See to it, and then comes the word that. That's point one. And then halfway through verse 15, that. That's point two. And then beginning in verse 16, that. That's point three. And they might be slightly different. In the King James, um, I think it has lest. So you might have a slightly different translation. But there are three key warnings we are supposed to look over our church and make sure these are three things that don't happen. Now, I'm actually going to preach them just as commands to us because from a sermonic standpoint, it's easier. So I'm going to put it this way. What are the three warnings for us, beloved? Here we go. Ready? Warning number one. Don't turn away from the God of grace. Notice verse 15. See to it that, first point, no one comes short of the grace of God. We talked about the word come short last time. I just put up the same definition 
we saw last week. What does it mean to come short? It means to miss out on something through one's own fault, to miss, to fail to reach. I actually struggled with how to, how to do this first point, and I thought about making the first point something like, don't fail to finish. But then I thought, you know, that might not communicate well. Because see, sometimes you want to finish something and you simply can't. That's not this word. This is the idea that you have come short because you didn't want to finish. See, this is the idea of I'm running a race and I'm tired and I hurt and I, I don't know if all the pain's worth it. And, and some of you are saying, come on, Greg, keep running. But I come to the place where I say, no. I'm not only taking a break, I'm going back home, bib off, jumping in my truck, race done. That's that word, verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. It's not the first time we've seen that word in Hebrews. We had it back in chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore let us fear, if while the promise remains of entering His rest, I'm going to take that as going to heaven and having eternal life. Any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Let's keep it in context. Hebrews is written, guys, to Christians, professing Christians, who are being persecuted. And the Jewish people all around them are making their life very difficult. And what are they saying? Forget Jesus. Just, just forget the Jesus stuff and life would be so good for you. It's not complicated. Just say, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. Be a Jew like the rest of us, and you could have a great life. And Hebrew says, let's watch. Let's watch. Because if anyone comes short of God's grace, it's a fearful thing. There's no eternal life for them. There's no salvation for them. You say, wait a second, Greg. I thought you could like follow Jesus for half of your life and then renounce Jesus and just be an atheist or a Muslim or a Hindu the rest of your life. You don't need Jesus to go to heaven. The Bible nowhere teaches that. No one goes to heaven without Jesus. This verse says we should fear. While a promise remains of entering the rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Come short of what? To come short of the grace of God. You say, what is that a reference to? I would argue it's salvation grace. Most of the commentaries I look at take it this way. Here's just one. The danger is that some church members may end up eternally lost, missing out on God's grace. 
Grace here serves as another way of referring to his gift of salvation, which is freely offered. And people need to be warned. Because there is a temptation when life is very hard. Remember, we're talking about discipline. These believers were facing trials. They were suffering. And you hear it again and again. Just give up the Jesus thing. And there may be times where you're thinking this race is too hard and I don't want to run it anymore. That the author of Hebrews says, we as a church need to make sure that we're paying attention because that person needs to understand if they don't have Jesus, they don't have eternal life. Warnings for suffering believers, number one, don't turn away from the God of grace. See to it, verse 15, that no one comes short of the grace of God. And then number two, and and these three points actually are kind of overlapping. They're really, really close together. And most people take them as three separate points because the word that is parallel three times, even though they're very close and you're going to see that, okay? So number one, warning, don't turn away from the God of grace. Number two, I worded it this way, don't become bitter, hurting yourself and others. That's the second half of verse 15. Notice the text. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. You say, what is bitterness? I was looking up different definitions. Uh, One I came across is it's selfish, angry resentment over mistreatment. Someone has sinned against you. They mistreated you. They were wrong. You didn't deserve it. It's not fair. You're supposed to pursue peace with all men. And that was the whole message last week. It doesn't mean criminals don't go to jail. It doesn't mean we don't report It doesn't mean we don't call 911 again. Last week's message, I don't want to repeat all that. But I should not be a person who becomes bitter when people sin against me. If I realize that that person is actually an instrument in the hand of my loving Heavenly Father who's using the sin to help me become more like Jesus. See, that's the logic of the passage. So notice again this root, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Let's talk about the root of bitterness. This may not be something you've ever thought of, but I used to initially misunderstand this passage. And and I don't remember if it was actually someone preached it like this, or I, I just thought of it myself. The root of bitterness. I used to think there's a root. Maybe there's many roots. And if you're not careful, these roots will one day lead to bitterness. So let's identify the different roots of bitterness. In reality, that's not what the text is saying. The root is bitterness. It's like the city of Greer. What is the city? The city is Greer. 
The root of bitterness. What is the root? It's bitterness. So be careful that no root, look, remember that episkopos, looking around word, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. I used to think this was a root in my heart that would spring up. And I believe that's accurate, but that's not what the text is talking about. This is not a root of bitterness in your heart, even though you've got to watch for that. The root is a person. Watch out for somebody in the congregation who's bitter. You say, Greg, how do you know that? Because it's a reference to Deuteronomy 29 and verse 18, and I'll put that up real quick. Beware lest there be among you a man, that's a person, or woman, a person, or clan, a group of people, or tribe, even more people, whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. What kind of root? Any man any woman, any person, the roots a person. You say, what kind of person? A person who is being sinned against and says, this is not fair. And Lord, like, you're my heavenly Father and this is what happens in life? The kind of person who's reading the letter to the Hebrews. And they're being hammered by Jewish people that are saying, you got to quit the Jesus stuff. And the right response is, Lord, I'm so thankful that you're my heavenly Father. And I remember what Proverbs 3 says. Remember, don't forget what you read back in Proverbs 3 that whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And Lord, I know no pain, no gain. It's true on the gridiron. It's true in spiritual living. And I know you're doing something good in my life because you love me. It's for my good. You're making me like Jesus. But not everybody responds that way. And some people will say, God is not fair. I don't need this Jesus stuff. I mean, look what it's done for me. Let me tell you what's happened to me. And now we have a person who is bitter. Notice what it says about this person. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness bringing up causes trouble. That's kind of interesting, a verb there. It's only used one other time. It's in Luke 6.18. I didn't put it on the screen. It refers to a person who's troubled by an unclean spirit. Just like a demon-possessed person could be troubled by an unclean spirit, a bitter person is troubled by their bitter spirit. If I could draw that parallel. And beloved, we, we have to be careful about this. Because bitterness... It's a horrible thing 
Notice how I've, I've worded the point. Don't become bitter. Let's first talk about hurting yourself. Do you see that in the text? Springing up causes trouble. Many people believe it's a reference to troubling yourself and then troubling others. Let's start with troubling yourself. There are people who profess to follow Jesus. Life gets really, really hard. They think God failed them and they're gone. I'm thinking of a couple who worshipped with us a fairly long time. And that couple experienced an incredibly hard time in their lives. And a family member passes away. And you bump into them. No, I don't. Because I know, why would I go to church, Greg? I don't believe in Jesus. I, it's, it's just, hey, it didn't work for me. I'm not going to give you a hard time. You say, what happened? It's a hard thing to watch someone you love die. And it's an easy thing to say, God, I'm your child, so you're going to heal them, right? And I don't want to be overly specific, but that couple was claiming the healing of God. And in the name of Jesus, I'm praying for healing, which again, if you watch bad preaching on television, you too may do something like that. And then the person passes away. And you say, oh, so this is like Christianity? No. If God's that way, no. And the bitter person walks and is now hurting him or herself having turned away from the grace of God. It wasn't hard for me to try to think about what illustration to use for that point. It was hard to settle in on one. I wish I only knew one. But the world is filled with bitter people. And some of them got hurt in the church. And some of them got hurt on Christian schools. And if you want to find them, they all hang out online together. And none of them understand Hebrews 12. Because none of them are saying, you know what, I have been mistreated by people in ways that are not fair. But I realize it's all because I have a loving Heavenly Father in whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He's using it for good in my life that I might share His holiness. But notice there's something else in the verse. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. The second part, and by it many be defiled. Defiled's the idea of staining something. So you have like grape juice, right, in a cup. And then you splash grape juice on mom's nice linen and tablecloth. And now you stained it. That's the idea of defiled. It's a word that was used back in the New Testament times of the Jewish people being with Gentiles. And then they would be defiled and they would be unclean for a certain period of time. So, so it's the idea of the effect of one person on another 
See, I'm with these quote-unquote unclean Gentiles, and because of their uncleanness, I'm unclean. Because of the grape juice, I've now stained the linen tablecloth. Because of a bitter person, there's more bitterness going on in the church. Because bitter people are infectious. And they're looking for an opportunity to share bitterness with someone else. And there are other people who don't have a good handle on Hebrews 12. And they too have listened to bad preaching on television. And they too have heard, well, if you put your faith in Jesus, you'll never suffer. Everything's good. And if it's really bad, just claim a miracle. And send 20 bucks into whatever you know, television show you're watching. And because they don't know God well, they don't know Him as a loving, heavenly Father who brings discipline into our lives for our good, which is what this chapter is all about. They share their bitterness again and again and again, and people are infected in very hurtful ways. Warnings. Watch for this. Number one. Don't turn away from the God of grace. Number two, don't become bitter, hurting yourself and others. And just real quick, I'm on hurting yourself. I should have mentioned this earlier. My wife's the first one who told me this, as I understand it. If you're bitter, you want to hurt somebody, just make sure you dig two graves. Because one's for them and one's for you. Because you may destroy the other person, but just make sure you realize you're going to destroy yourself as well. That's just how this thing works. But you don't need to be like that if you really understand God well. And you have a handle on Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 all the way through 17. Third point, we have it actually in two verses. I've worded it this way, and maybe it'll be more clear in just a bit. Not only, number one, don't turn away from the God of grace. Number two, don't become bitter, hurting yourself and others. Number three, don't exchange eternal blessing for temporary relief. That's what the Hebrews were being tempted to do, and that's what Esau did. So that's why I'm wording it specifically like that. Let me go ahead and read verse 16. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Let's break this down into two subpoints. God has given us two full verses on Esau. So this must be something he wants us to think a little bit about. I put verse 16 this way. Don't sin like Esau. You say, okay, what did Esau do? Let's review. Esau is a person, well, let's, take, let's look at these two words first. Maybe we'll do that. That there be no immoral or godless person. Let's hit those two words, and I'm going to start with the second one, godless. Godless is not necessarily ungodly. It's, it's more of I'm not interested in God. It doesn't mean you're the most wicked person there is. It's the idea that you're just not interested 
in God. Some people translate it worldly. Some people translate it profane. And the word immoral, people have different viewpoints on. Do you see it there in your verse? It says that there be, verse 16, no immoral or godless person. Esau, from the Genesis account, is clearly godless. Okay? He's just not into God. It's just not anything important to him. But what about immoral? There's really nothing specific in the Old Testament about Esau being actively immoral. You can read it between the lines, and it may be possible. So some people think it's a reference to sexual immorality, even though there's nothing in this context related to that. It still could be. Frequently in the Old Testament, immorality is a picture of worshiping false gods, of being spiritually unfaithful. And many commentators in context think that that's what's actually going on in the text. It's a metaphorical reference to spiritual unfaithfulness. And you say, is there anything in the text to suggest that? Yeah, just the rest of the verse who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Because he's not actively worshiping Yahweh as he should, but he's distracted worshiping other gods, including himself. That's what's going on here with Esau. Do you remember the account? We're not going to go back there because of time. But, but Jacob and Esau, do you remember? Esau is the firstborn by a little bit, and he has the right of the firstborn. And here comes Jacob. And Jacob is what? A guy who has something good to eat. And and let me let me let me let me start again. So I don't get these two guys confused. Jacob and Esau. So Esau is the guy who wants something to eat that Jacob has. There we go. And he's incredibly hungry, and he's thinking, I wish I had, can we call it stew? If I just had some stew, and that's just a, what, a meal. Notice what the text says, the New American Standard puts in the word single, for a single meal. All I want is something to eat. And what does Esau say? I want something to eat very badly. And Jacob, would you give me your birthright for it? Well, I mean, I guess I'm hungry. Why not? And here we have Esau who trades, barters, exchanges the point, eternal blessing for temporary relief, for a meal. I mean, a meal. Why would you give up something as special spiritually as the blessing that comes to the guy who's in the place of the firstborn? Because you're godless. And again, it doesn't mean you're the world's worst person. You just don't care. It's not something that's important to you. 
You say, so what do you do? You exchange eternal blessing for temporary relief. It made me think of 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18. Momentary light affliction. Affliction is hard. But momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And when the affliction comes, it's easy to forget that it's momentary and it's light. And it's easy to forget that the things unseen are much greater than the things that are seen. And we should be looking forward to that which is eternal. But Esau wasn't thinking that way. And thus, he's an example of a person who would come to the wrong decision. To the Hebrews, don't give in to all the peer pressure of the other Jews and turn your back on Christ. Yes, life would be easier for you for a little bit, for a short time. But why would you exchange eternal blessing for temporary relief? Don't sin like Esau. That's verse 16. And then secondly, we're still on Esau. Don't end up like Esau. Verse 17. For you know that even afterwards, Esau, when he desired to inherit the blessing... He was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, even though he sought for it with tears. A lot of people struggle with these verses. Let me see if I can be a little bit of help. I'm going to stay really close to the text. Notice verse 17. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Let's start with he was rejected. You say, in what way was Esau rejected? When he sought to inherit the blessing. Remember? Here's a guy who has the inheritance of the firstborn. And he's going to be blessed in a special way. You say, but what did he do? He exchanged it for a meal. And then later on, he decides, hey, I want it back. And he's rejected. For you know that even afterwards, when he, do you see it? He desired to inherit the blessing. He was rejected. For... He found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Now, people like to ask, what does it mean he found no place for repentance? Many people will note, it doesn't say that he found no repentance. Notice, he found no place for repentance. He found no opportunity for repentance. You say, what does that mean? It's not that he wanted to repent, but he couldn't. He wanted the inheritance of the blessing back. He already gave it away. You can't say, hey, remember that 
bowl of stew thing? And I gave you my inheritance. Can we like go backwards and just pretend that never happened? Maybe seeing it written out by a commentator will help. The point is not that Esau was psychologically unable to repent, but that his tears came too late to change his earlier decision to barter away his inheritance rights. There was now no way back. There's no room for second thoughts. Guys, sometimes what happens, we say, that ship already sailed. And there's no going back. And that was clear with Esau. It's clear frequently in life. Not always, but frequently. You know, a couple of quick illustrations. I remember a, a young lady, a student coming up to me. Hey, Dr. Mazak, when I was young, she was college-age girl. When I was young, my dad left our family. He's always out just with other women, living a horrible life. Never really invested in us, never really spent time with us. And then here I am getting ready to get married, and he shows up and wants me to let him walk me down the aisle like everything's fine. Everything's not fine. I hardly even know him. Where's he been? And then when it looks good for him, he wants to show up and walk me down the aisle. So, what do you think? And I say, now let's, let's be careful. We know that bitterness, this passage, is never appropriate. But no, you can't go back and just pretend it never happened. And I have no problem with you telling your dad, no, you're not going to walk me down the aisle. I have no problem with that. If I were you, I wouldn't want him either. There's no relationship there. And he wants to just go back like it never happened. Guys, life's not that way frequently. Let me use an example as I was thinking about this text that came up on ESPN, okay? I won't use his name. There's a very famous NBA basketball player, and some of you say, Greg, I don't even know any NBA players. If I used his name, you would know it. He's like the biggest guy you could think of, okay? He's like really big, and he's on a lot of shows, whatever. He does a lot of new stuff too. And just this week on a podcast, I don't listen to this podcast, but it hit the news because it was interesting. This NBA player, who would be older, maybe somewhere, I don't know, my age category perhaps, was talking to an NFL football star who's young, and he was saying to this younger NFL star, and I wrote, took notes so I would get it right, don't be like me. I've lived a double life. I lost my wife. I lost my family. I live in a 100,000 square foot house by myself. If I could encourage you, don't do what I did. He was a very immoral man. He said, enjoy your beautiful wife. Enjoy your beautiful kids. Don't now, I'm reading a quote, moms and dads. Don't be an idiot like me. And here's an incredibly wealthy, incredibly talented man 
who says, if I could go back, I would live life differently, and now I'd be an older man with a wife and with kids, but they're gone, and I can't get them back because that ship has sailed. This text is making it clear that in some way, when people come to the place and they say, I am tired of following Jesus. I want nothing else to do with Jesus. In some fashion, in some way, at least it's sometimes for some people, there's no going back. And the opportunity is gone. You say, what would that be? I don't know. The text doesn't say. But the text makes it clear that we need to think about Esau and make sure that we don't fall into the same trap of exchanging eternal blessing for temporary relief. For the Hebrews, hey, you don't need to put up with this persecution. Just say, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. And you're good. And Hebrews the letter is written to these people saying, don't do it. Don't turn away from the God of grace. There's no salvation apart from Jesus. You don't go to heaven without Him. Don't become bitter, hurting yourself and others. And thirdly, don't exchange eternal blessing for temporary relief. Here's the conclusion. And we finished up what I think is just an incredibly important section. Remembering I'm taking that from the text. you got to go back to what was going on in Proverbs 3, right? Don't forget what it says back in Hebrews, excuse me, Proverbs chapter 3. I'm reading from verse 5. Don't forget the exhortation. So that's where I'm getting remembering. Remembering that your loving heavenly Father, whom the Lord loves, He chastens, uses the sin of others to discipline you, that's this whole text. For your good. Verse 10, it's always for your good. Then be sure that you what? Number one, keep running. And don't turn away from God. You say, Greg, I'm, getting, I'm a Christian and I feel like I'm getting hand, hammered everywhere I turn. I used to feel like that in football practice all the time. And coach said, come on, Greg, don't quit. One day you're going to be playing, one day you're going to be starting, one day we're going to get to the fourth quarter and we're going to win because we're going to be in better shape than them. Greg, don't quit. And spiritually, keep running. Realize what? Number two, that you shouldn't become bitter. You say, what would I do instead of become bitter? Rehearse what you know about God from this passage. That his discipline is always for your good. He's doing it so that you would share his holiness. So what about all those people out that pursue peace with them, beloved? You don't have to be their best friends, but pursue peace with them and holiness. Realize that God's doing this in your life to make you more like Jesus. And then finally, number three, don't trade Jesus for anything. 
what else is there other than Jesus? I mean, you might get temporary relief, but is it worth it? Is it worth it being like Esau for a meal? I mean, a bowl of soup, porridge, stew. Giving up eternal blessing for things that ultimately don't even matter, or at least are brief and relatively unimportant. So I read this again. Remembering that your loving Heavenly Father uses the sin of others to discipline you for your good. Be sure that you keep running. Don't turn away from God. Be sure that you don't become bitter. Pursue peace and holiness. And don't trade Jesus for anything. Let's pray. There should always be a response to the preaching of God's Word. I want to pause before I pray publicly. If you're struggling because you're a Christian and yet you have been sinned against in great ways, And in this text, you've come to realize that it's not that God doesn't love you. It's actually that God's doing something good in your life. He's making you more like Jesus. You say, Greg, it still hurts. I know it hurts. I know it hurts. You say, I don't like it. I don't like it either. But if God has brought something, maybe a person to your mind, before I close in prayer, would you just want to Silently take a moment to pray to the Lord, asking Him to forgive me for my bitterness and to help me to realize that it's all part of discipline of my good Heavenly Father and He's making me more like Jesus. If you'd want to just take a moment to pray, and then I'll close. Father, this 12th chapter of Hebrews, the portion that we've finished up this morning, has opened up to me in a way that I've never really seen before. The practicality of it, how it meets us with the challenges that we struggle with as believers. Lord, I've, I have never seen it as clearly as I have in this series. And Lord, I know that's the Holy Spirit just opening up my mind. I know the Word's always been clear. It's always been true. It's, it's always been here. Many others have seen it. And now I'm seeing it. I pray for brothers and sisters. Maybe some who've seen it before, but it just kind of slipped away and they forgot about it. Maybe others more like me, who've just never seen it so clearly, but now it's clear. 
And now we know how to face the trials of life, especially when people sin against us. Lord, for anyone who's confessed sin in our closing time, thank you as they've come to you in Jesus' name that they've already experienced forgiveness. And we thank you for that. And Lord, all of us praying that you would help us. To do this, Lord, is not something we could do in our own strength, by our own willpower, but something we know that the Holy Spirit can do. And we pray for your glory and by your grace, he would do that as we continue to endure suffering as part of the path of becoming more like Jesus. Well, thank you. In his name we pray.